0: What makes a community resilient and what makes an individual resilient is not the, the self-mastery and the will to be resilient. And uh, it's more like, what have you done with those relationships? What is the quality of those bonds? What is the, the kind of inclusivity that they're able to uh, create at all times among them?
1: This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we are talking about relational somatics with Lucienne Damaris of Relational Uprising. Relational Uprising is a training and coaching institute that supports social movements to foster a relational culture of embodied support, interdependence, and inclusion in their organizations and communities. We talk in today's episode about how our embodiment relates to our field of relationships with other humans, animals, and nature. Lucien is a somatics-based healer, educator, and has trained in the U.S. and internationally for the last 15 years. His formal training is as a guild-certified Feldenkrais practitioner of somatic education, and they're also a California licensed acupuncturist and a nationally certified body worker. Lucien identifies as Mestizo and is from Ecuador. He is a really advanced student, teacher, and practitioner, and you'll hear his advanced depth of practice in the way that he talks about these topics. I love listening to how Lucien perceives and understands the world in such an insightful web of relationship and interaction. This understanding of relational somatics is an important and a unique offer in that way with an invitation for ways that we can all be tuning in more closely and co-regulating together. This conversation is a little bit of a continuation of what we've discussed before on the podcast, first in episode 20 about relational culture, bonding, and resonance with Mark Fairfield, and then also in episode 32 where you've heard Lucienne's voice before, along with Cedar, talking about bridging and relational inclusion. You may remember their practice called What's Wise About It, really helpful. So these three episodes work together very closely and have developed a lot out of this shared framework together. So today's episode will totally make sense to you if you just start listening here and have not heard those other episodes before. But if you want to really build an understanding of their frameworks, I would recommend listening to episode 20 and 32 first. Okay, I think y'all are ready. Here's the conversation
0: with Lucien. Hi, Lucien. Hi,
1: Kate. I am so grateful that you're here because I feel like the very particular medicine that you bring to our movements and also specifically to this conversation about healing and embodiment um, is a perspective that I don't hear coming so strongly from anywhere else, which is the way in which healing and belonging and um, togetherness and unity is really only possible from a stance of the collective, that healing is not something that can be done individually and that like embodiment practices are not something we can develop in ourselves to become so strong that we can just like dictate our own reality of how we feel all the time I feel like you're teaching me constantly about coming back to the group and so for that reason I feel really excited that you're here and I would love to ask you like before we dive into what is relational somatics and all of these things is there a story of a foundational experience for you where you started really feeling this signaling of like oh like healing or or attunement to the group is not something I can just generate myself but that like social cues and interdependence are necessary ingredients to my own healing hi Kate (laughs) yes I can
0: definitely start by answering that really long question the really complex nuance Um, um but thank you for having me here I'm really pleased to um continue this conversation
1: mm.
0: and you know what comes to mind in terms of a story um i think two things come to mind the first one is um i like to tell this uh sort of experience that i've had over time uh around the social cues of me coming from latin america from my quarter particularly and uh coming from a field that constantly cues physically um entrances and exits from that social field and and the welcoming uh, mood of it, you know, Mm. like kissing in the cheek, saying hello, saying goodbye, overdoing it multiple (laughs) times, um, to, you know, for the circumstances of my life to end up here in America and and be confronted with a completely different social field where uh, physical touch is actually not looked for, Mm. uh, is very formal, and uh, most entrances and exits from that social field are informal, like people actually don 't necessarily acknowledge the the hello or the goodbye or mm-hmm. um, and quite it seems quite hostile in a way to that sort of uh, physical acknowledgement mm-hmm. and I tell that story because uh, even though it seems like you know a small thing, it actually became uh, a big thing for me throughout my life here, uh, which is that at first you know it was the the constant reminder that I don't, I'm not welcome, you know, that mm. um, these Americans are rude or or that, you know, I am just not likable. <laughs> mm. And, you know, and, and going through from that place of, like, blaming, you know, the field to, like, uh, blaming myself for it um, was an actual problem. It was was something that, you know, I feel like I even went to therapy for in terms of, you know, what, what do I do with this? You know, what, what can I, how could I... Um, cultivate something that doesn't make me feel such a heartbreak and such a confusion of knowing who's responsible and what should I do with it. So I took responsibility, uh, and I learned how to adapt, how to not make it so important to myself. Um, But honestly, you know, I'm 43, and and to this day, in spite of all the amazing techniques to (laughs) adapt to that signal and not feel triggered in in a dysregulating way, even though that's possible and it does an option, there's days that the option doesn't work as well or doesn't work at all. Mm. And I also feel like I always feel the anxiety of that moment, the moment that I enter a social field that is not welcoming. And I tell this anecdote and this part of my story because that's what I feel it catapulted me also to try to understand uh, yeah. the social neurobiology behind that and, and being somebody that, you know, study healing and went to somatic school really understanding you know what are the the ways in which we're creating a social field together in and, and the other story that i wanted to share the other anecdote comes more from you know my early years in ecuador uh learning with my indigenous mentors about healing and and, and seeing them heal in ways that um later when i came here were completely uh, different and contrasting as well uh, and one of them being the fact that none of them had a a private room where they will do their their healing but they all receive you at their home uh, with their whole family mm. which were quite numerous because they're very relational and very community oriented and collectivists and also the the healing process and maybe even the 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 dramatic catharsis that happens was witnessed by everyone, and everybody, in a way, had a, a, a role in it in some some uh, supportive way, including the pets, including the cat that will jump in the middle of a, a <laughs> catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> no, the, catharsis, the cat is,
1: ju- yeah, the cat is jumping with you, <laughs> experiencing it.
0: So you know, I, I just say this because it feels very um, formative to to mm-hmm. witness that experience and have that experience and then come here and and. You know, be presented with a paradigm and a professional paradigm that mm. is obsessed, like super obsessed, with privatizing the the delivery of care and and mm. and making sure that nobody witnesses. So, um, yeah, I feel like those those anecdotes really um, created, you know, enough context for me to be curious about relationality and what happens in relation. And you know, as a care practitioner, you learn how to really be attuned to. Um, Signals of empathy, and particularly the method that I study, uh, folding is one where you're um, you want to understand when you put somebody's hand in somebody's body, what narrative you're building together that uh, might not be verbal, but is in this pre-verbal or sub place where you're you cueing each other if you're safe to oh. be in this dance, mm-hmm. and and you know building that slowly just through. Nonverbal language.
1: Mm -hmm. I love how you're using the term of social field, which is not something I hear very often. um, Of like, like even at the beginning, you're talking about queuing in the social field, and I'm like, oh, you're talking about like coming to somebody's house and then like leaving their house, or like coming to a group that's talking at a table and then walking away from the table. Like those moments, to think of it in such a sacred and attuned way of, like, entering and exiting a field. And then the also the word context that you're using of, like, oh, like, what you're actually bringing us into is that this context in which our healing work is happening. If it's in a sterile private room, that's a context that's going to inform what happens there. And if it's in somebody's house with kids running around and a cat that's jumping, that context is, like, all included in the process. and. Um, I wonder if that is a transition for you to also talk about what do these words mean? What does relational mean? and then why are we talking about it with the word somatics specifically? Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, in, in a way, we're trying to create a language also, and some of these words, of course, are new, but we're trying to create a language to, to define, new boundaries and new things to pay attention to. So this idea of a social field uh, that is created and encounters that we have with people, you know, they're boundary. They're in a way, you know, sometimes contained in a room, contained in a a house, contained in a a section of a street. It's just interesting way of like just talking about rather than just community to the phenomenon that is unfolding and emerging when whomever is there Mm -hmm. is present and engaged in a particular way. But particularly because, you know, in relational, we're trying to move away from just thinking of collectives and thinking of individuals and the different dynamics that we see on both, but rather like seeing what's in between, what's the the glue that mm. uh, makes them be part of a continuum. Mm. And not only between individuals and communities, but also between the ecology and the body. That's what somatics comes in. Somatics is a term that, you know, has been um, coined to define a field that is trying to understand The holistic body. What what is what is the boundary of that body? Where does it end?
1: Hmm. Does
0: it end in the skin? Does it end in the energetic field, or does it end further into some uh, sometimes even you know a a more um, esoteric definition, right?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. But you know then we're talking about the social field again, and uh, we're talking about the way in where we're making relationships together. Uh, This was more the physiological, the biological certainty, but now we're talking about how we're building society, how we're building uh, family units, how we're building communities, and how we're building a world that um, hopefully is a human world that matches the ecology so we can mm. live here and take care of it with mm. us. But unfortunately, that hasn't happened. You know, we've become at odds with ecology and with the stories of the ecology. And one of those stories is our mammalian story, our need for others, our, our need for um, uh, cultures of empathy. Cultures that that affirm what we know now to be our first drive, the drive to belong, and this is this is very important for us. This is one that uh, we feel there's not a lot of um, big movies about it or yes. big like signs out there that you can read about your social engagement system, the mammalian system, and this drive to belong.
1: Hmm. And are you saying mammalian because it's common to all mammals, or is the drive to belong specific to humans?
0: Well, the the social engagement system comes with mammals. Most mammals uh, already come with this. It's just in humans it has taken you know a leap into um, deep empathic abilities and and deep uh, insight capacities. Uh, so so it's just a matter of degree but you know it's actually a, a mammalian thing that's why we can actually feel so safe sometimes with the cues of a dog because of what the dog does to our nervous
1: system yeah wow so I know a lot of the work that you do is with groups like whether it's organizations or movement folks or whatever um, what are some of the ways just thinking about like those dog cues or the belonging cues like what are some of the belonging cues that you see in groups or that you try to cultivate in groups that you're like, aha, like belonging is good here, belonging is high here. How do you how do you perceive it?
0: So another thing I see, uh, and I think it's quite important to to kind of name it, is that because you know this uh, over reliance on, on self-regulatory methodologies to to transform our bodies, to to invest in personal transformation that, um, you know, we ended up also watching a phenomenon of that isolation in the in the, in the the social field of movements, which is something similar to call-out culture. A little bit of a uh, an over-corrective mood, an over-corrective feel that, um, you know, it's almost like by default falls into that shaming methodology of like just naming uh, in ways that rather than makes us appreciate what's named, we get reactive and defensive. Um, and you know, this has to do also with, you know, the fact that the, the very self-regulatory methodology sometimes removed us completely from the possibility of receiving the benefit of co-regulation from the community. Mm. So we might find these really, like, well-equipped self-regulatory masters in our movement that come with an overcorrective uh, culture, mm-hmm. carrying on themselves and, and not having really tools to, to not be that way and creating, in a way, a... a an intensity over how things should be done or what kinds of systems of accountability will we have and, and you know, working against the possibility of inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we want to, you know, kind of pay attention to those neuroses that we can create when we remove ourselves from community mm-hmm. and want to believe uh, with passion that, you know, self-regulation and self-narratives are the way to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Part of, tell me if this is right. Part of what I'm hearing is like isolation breeds dogmatism.
0: Yes, that would be the best way to put it. it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Is the is the prime conditions for that rigidity uh-huh. in neurosis and dogmatism,
1: uh-huh.
0: and that's why you know we, we can be have you know something as amazing as socialism and turn it into a religion that, you know, kills uh, infidels, because hmm. you know most of the people in the movement are 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 bonded by an ideology, and and unfortunately in this culture. That means we don't necessarily need to pay attention to what our bodies are feeling and what our bodies are saying to each other. As long as we know we're, we've said, you know, that we, uh, you know, are ag- agreeing with the principles of what we're together around and the actions that we're collaborating on, on, on the roles that we have. That seems to be enough most of the time. But then you enter into the spaces of collaboration, and there's all this gestural uh, cueing that is happening, where you're seeing all this implicit world of um jagged uh gestures or implicit resentments or um things that are not being said that you can feel them and not necessarily a space to do something about it you know recognize that as, as as a thing that maybe we should you know create a space for this now mm-hmm. before it's too mm-hmm. late.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so, And also, you know, certain rituals that actually, even though we might have may, may normalize them as a good thing that we do, it actually is cueing the nervous system to be in a defensive role. Mm-hmm. For example, one that is very popular in movement is this, this, this idea of affirming through more of a marching rhythm, um, uh, kind of like very identity-based uh, could be singing, could be moving. (laughs) But, um, you know, because they're in a particular tone and they have a particular frequency of of engagement, they're actually triggering more of a defensive response. You know, we're we're armoring to to belong through defense. And that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about these other ways of feeling intimate that are not about making those defense mechanisms go up, Uh but rather lower down and, and be in a state where we are uh-huh. actually explicitly cueing each other that is safe to belong.
1: Wow, okay, so this feels really important. So when you're talking about like songs or rituals that bring up a defensiveness, are you talking about something like chanting? Like it's like almost like the ways in which in movement groups we're, we're actually preparing to go into various kinds of battles.
0: That's, that's right.
1: And confrontations, right? And oftentimes very intentionally, like we literally are training for confrontation. That's right. And so you're saying, the, the help me know if I'm understanding, the ways in which we're doing that, it does create a certain kind of belonging or affirms a shared identity, but we need to also have energetic space in our groups to have a more settled Kind of belonging that isn't just about kind of like that upregulated battle cry.
0: That's right. So okay. differentiating what they do uh-huh. and when they're appropriate. And making sure that when we're in our communities, when we're building culture, when we're trying to heal, when we're coming, you know, uh, back from an action, mm. that we need this other kind of social engagement to, to be made explicit and, and be done in order for us to be in this co-regulated state. Mm. Which kind of like goes full circle into what it means relational somatics, which is to put on the forefront the need for co-regulation. Mm. How it is an imperative, a biological one, an evolutionary one, and how we have very little space and in investment into one in spaces of co-regulation mm. because the the culture of the body and the culture of healing is mostly pulling us into server regulatory methodologies.
1: Yeah. Well, it's making me think about, like, um, times that I've been involved in a lot of direct action and there's been a lot of urgency around campaigns and stuff like that. Like, the ability to really, as a group, go into battle together, but then there's, like, no time for a debrief. There's no, like, culture-building time. It's, like, all we do is get together and plan the next thing and the ways in which, like, that f- that, like, fighter and confrontation muscle that we're building together then all of a sudden people are turning and using that same muscle on each other. It's like we have one mode of being together. So even when we're in the meeting and like the DA or the police officer that we're confronting is not in the meeting, our, st- our defensive stance or our fighter stance is still present in the meeting, and then all of a sudden the only people there to use it on are each other. Um, is that what you're talking about? Uh,
0: yes, and also the fact that we believe that's a state that we can sustain. Mm-hmm. You know that we should have the energy every day to be that way. You know to be in that uh, confrontational mode and and the cost mm-hmm. that to the actual body, the, mm-hmm. our health and all that. Those states were evolved for short yeah. encounters, for short moments of our day. Yeah. They were not evolved to be sustainable. So so understanding also the need of of, of the of the people. Mm-hmm. You know the, because that the people is what's supporting us to be in a better kind of reactivity in a better kind of uh, fighting mode Mm because we're connected and the more connected we are and the more we've spent time doing the right kind of social engagement the the more uh, caring kind Mm -hmm. then when we go into those stages where actually are more complex we're more um, effective Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, and you know the the fighting doesn't necessarily go on to make us turn in each other because we have different kind of bonds. Mm
1: -hmm. So what are some examples of those kinds of spaces of like the down-regulated, like the contrast to the fight energy that groups can cultivate? Like what are examples of activities or ways of being together that you feel like gives that sort of like settled, relaxed belonging that groups need to be resilient?
0: Yes. uh, So the first one is, you know, the one that you already know, the storytelling and resonance is kind of like the, the first intervention on that. You know, the storytelling being Uh, a process that is slow down reactivity, that allows people to, you know, bring all that big energy into a coherent uh, way of expressing vulnerability and expressing uh, Mm. uh, the needs that are there. And then resonance being kind of like the first sort of um, tool for dissociative states when you're checking out, when you're leaving, resonance brings you back. So the somatic uh, module kind of like just goes into a deeper level of that. And we have three tools, one that is called somatic touch, another one that is called somatic play, and uh, the third one called somatic ceremony. And what we mean by these three tools is, you know, really engaging the nonverbal, the the embodied realm of uh, languaging with each other and cueing each other in these very specific ways. Um, So, for example, uh, somatic touch is the first sort of, very basic way in which each other's uh, bodies can show immediately the the certainty that we're there for each other that we're gonna care for each other and that therefore we can depend on being on each other's arms mm. um, so you know we, we learn ways in which we can give that message really clearly you know how to uh, not be misinterpreted because this is not something you're gonna say with your voice, you're gonna say it with your hands. So, for example, uh, we avoid touching the muscle. We kind of like focus on touching bone and organ uh, mm-hmm. as a way of, you know, bypassing the the already habituated body of things that will feel inappropriate.
1: So, you're talking about like small exercises of connective touch. Yes.
0: Ready? Not only that, but also referring to a region in your body uh, as uh, connected to your brain in a different way. So. Um, you know, one way that you could think of is, you know, there's there's a place where you tell the stories. Uh, and your body, that place that tells the stories, is the muscle body, right? It's the body that has learned how to move and posture and gesture over your life in different ways. Hmm. So when you're engaging the muscles, you're engaging what's habitual, what you already know, uh-huh. what already has all the habits. So by engaging bone and organ, uh, we're bypassing the habit and going into these deeper parts of you that. Are actually already connected with a bigger story in ecology, like your organs, for example, are organized by the social engagement system and the autonomic responses, and the bone you know is responding to uh, more holistic arrangements of, of cueing each other
1: mm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's really cool. I never thought about that before. I have my hand now on my belly. <laughs> I'm trying to feel. No,
0: it's really cool stuff that yeah. we, we just don't know about the body because it's not tall. And, and also it's because the dominant culture has put all the attention just on the muscle body, right? Yeah. And uh, that's the performative body. That's the athlete body. That's the body that we want to look good on. Um, so, you know, it's almost like organs and bones don't exist.
1: Yeah. So that's the first one is somatic touch. And then what was the second Tool
0: that you use? The second one is somatic play. Oh, yeah, this play. is a more uh, mobilized strategy where we're in and you could say more Energized more active states um, Where we're cueing each other also that we are safe in those states and you know, you you could potentially say any sport that engages You with another human could have the potential of being play. However um you know, the, the thing is that our culture has already inoculated this idea of the winner and the loser, and there's a whole context around that. And most games are about us, about us smarting each other and about who's the best one or the, the more badass whatever, or who wins. And, and so it's easy to miss the, the quality of play and the quality of queuing in something different. Um, so, you know, if it's a game, making sure that at the end of the game everybody's cool with each other for whatever the score is. But you know, instead of like going in that direction and, and making sure that we are explicitly cultivating a particular kind of play, we move away from, again, sports and those kinds of engagements and we move into more uh, contexts that, that resemble what we did when we were five, when we were four. Um, so we do a lot of uh, movement that is slow, a lot of movement that is connected to the ground, a lot of movement that just brings online more of our uh, graceful selves, our idea of being graceful with each other. And at the same time being vulnerable. So we have dance, we have movements that we do uh, in the floor, crawling, creeping, um, rolling. Hmm.
1: Uh,
0: And we also have these uh, very intentional ways of feeling how we're reaching towards another Hmm. uh, through our our body. And the last tool, somatic ceremony. That's that's uh, more the the narrative piece. You know how we're making meaning out of these engagements. How 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 is that informing? How we're coming together, and uh, you know engaging more of the the externalization through objects and through organization of a space together. Uh, of how we're caring for each other and how we're carrying legacies mm-hmm. of different kinds.
1: Mm-hmm. So touch, play, and ceremony. And I know that you talk about the relational somatics work as like really building the immune system or it's preventative work. It's It's not for when a group is already in crisis, although maybe some of the tools work there too. But I'm just even thinking of the practicality of like, hey, like if we've all come together to do a certain thing, in what context would I be like, hey, let's take a whole meeting and like, just like, roll around on the floor like we're four and five years old you know (laughs) like how does this kind of healing and such important work for groups like how does this sort of fit into real life well you
0: know we try to do the best to make the the tools easy and accessible and hopefully applicable Mm -hmm. uh in in an easy context but you know it is a stretch and it's a stretch and a purpose in an intentional way uh because we do need to work with narratives and embody ways of being with shame in different ways, in particular about shame that we receive because of our need of belonging. Um, and if you think about, you know, what that means, you know, if you break it down, what what belonging and wanting belonging hmm. has been broken down into in three things, you know, and shame of dependency, shame of intimacy, and shame of difference. So, hmm. how do we create ways of being together where? We're constantly cueing each other that your needs of intimacy, your difference, and um, you need to depend on others is actually okay and something that we want you to bring to the group. Uh-huh. <laughs> so because we're traumatized and because we're in a very relentless culture, uh, we do believe that if you don't engage the body in some intentional way, then you won't have that. So... It might be a stretch to touch one another. It might be a stretch to um, engage our bodies in a particular way. But, um, you know, as I said, it could be, you know, basic things, you know, like touching your hand in a different way, touching the bones of your hand, uh, feeling the pulse. And as somebody played, it could be something else like, let's go dancing. We need to dance this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really creating the awareness that that might be actually really wise, mm-hmm. that it might not be just like, uh, you know, time off kind of like check out kind of thing but it's an actual way in which we're building a resource together yeah. uh, and we, you know we're calming the activity of the group we're telling parts of our stories that we can't say verbally um, and then ceremony you know to have an intentional space to talk about who are we here for and why are we here for and why you know we value
1: what we value Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, it's Kate. I just wanted to drop in for a moment to check in with you about some of the really cool community building efforts that are happening here at the podcast. And it feels like a really perfect relationship to our topic this week about relational attunement and co-regulation to talk about ways that we can be together more. We're using our Patreon as a way to organize our community and also crowdfund this project. We have a bunch of new levels there now, you can check them out at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And the first level is our $5 a month level, our community level, where you can join to support the project and also uh, get an invitation to our virtual community that will be launching this summer. Book Club is our most poppin' level on Patreon right now. Any level at $10 or above. 60 of you have joined Book Club in the last two weeks. We're so excited um, to be reading Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown together. Uh, When you join Book Club, you'll get a 30% off code to buy the book directly from our partners at AK Press. You'll get a discussion guide to host a local book club if you want to. Um, And we will also have a webinar, this time with Adrian and the contributors Amita Swarin and uh, Monique Tula later this summer to do an interactive hangout and Q&A online uh, that you can join and ask your questions to the authors directly. We also have a few more levels. There's a reciprocity level for $25 a month, which is really for folks who are using this work regularly and want to be in conversation with other practitioners around it. There's a redistribution level at $50 a month for folks with access to money or class privilege. And something really cool about our redistribution level is that we take 15% of what we raise at that level and donate it back to frontline healing justice groups that are less visible and less resourced. So you can help us redistribute money to efforts on the ground that way. And finally, our donor circle for folks who really have access to money um, to give $100 a month and be part of our quarterly donor circle calls, our little community of practice around folks with access to wealth and how we're showing up to healing work and supporting this work on the front lines. So we hope you'll check out those levels at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And an extra little bonus from our friends at AK Press. For anyone who's listening to the podcast, you can go and buy Pleasure Activism or any other book in their amazing catalog at 15% off using the code podcast. That's akpress.org using the code podcast. Hope to see you over on the Patreon community and back to Lucien. I'm just having this memory that I haven't thought about for a long time of this woman, Doña Oti, in El Salvador, who lived in a community called Mariona where the gang violence was like the most intense of all of the places around San Salvador. And she ran this group out of her house and like the foundational practice of the group was giving each other hand massages like just touching each other's hands and uh my sister was there for some time and the accompaniment like I think there's until now like previously my political development I would have been like oh like not totally a negation of what that is but like a like, they need to do much more. Like, the government is not doing shit about this gang violence. They're feeding it. You know, the narcos are, like, in col- collaboration with the police. Like, it's all fucked up. We need to fight. But I never really thought again about, like, the wisdom of what she was doing, of, like, just getting people to get into a ritual practice of touching each other's hands. It's like a, a trust-building and a healing practice. And something that was felt so intimate and nervous and vulnerable, but was also such a safe kind of touch. To just touch the hands. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. And we do it all the time. (laughs) And, and, you know, again, it's it's this idea of, like, really taking it seriously, you know, because we already are in a culture that dismisses uh, anything related to the body and and makes touch, make, you know, almost like screech your corniness. Because, like, really? Uh That's what we're going to do? But, you know, that's basically... Denying and not admitting that we are a body and that we are a nervous system and that we are influenced by each other's nervous system. So, uh-huh. so we need something that builds uh, and works with the unconscious because all our embodied processes are unconscious and are constantly making us organize in particular ways. So, having that certainty of a caring hand, having the certainty of a ritual that allows you to have the conditions to be in a caring way of doing that is uh-huh. is. Very, very important.
1: I haven't asked you about this before, and I feel it's about it's about my own nervousness. I feel almost nervous to ask, but I'm curious. With so much of the really liberatory things that are moving in our culture right now around liberating um, women and other marginalized communities from sexual exploitation, like the Me Too movement, talking more about consent, like in our radical communities and our healer communities there's a lot more emphasis of like oh if we come into a room not only is it not a norm in the united St- in many cultures in the us to like not hug each other but actually now we're getting into the practice of saying oh would you like a hug like always making sure we're getting consent all the time like how how do you think about have you been like adapting To that shift in what's happening in the collective culture here around really understanding consent? And how does it also relate to and join with our really deep need for connective touch?
0: Absolutely. And uh, this is very important. You know, I feel like, again, the most important part of our design and intervention is to be explicit and clear, Um, even if you're not going to use language, right? If you're going to be nonverbal or preverbal. To make sure that there is an agreement of what are you gonna to do together and if it's okay or not, before doing and after, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. that's another thing, you know, to learn to bear witness to responses of shame that you might see on somebody. So if you mm-hmm. happen to witness something while you're touching someone, to be able to to respond appropriately, so that the care is explicit at all times.
1: Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. So. What else do you want to teach us, Lucien? There's so much to talk about with relational somatics. What what other calls do you have for movement folks to tune in more to the social field and how we be together?
0: Well, the the we the, feel like there's a necessity to see resilience as something that you cultivate over time and that see resilience as something that has to do with having an inclusive field, having an inclusive community, having one that is not just you know, on paper that is inclusive, but one where you constantly feel like you're not excluded. Uh, Mm. And this could be in subtle ways, you know, it could be even for like, you know, you're not being a good organizer, so you're ashamed the shit out of not being, uh, showing up in a way that you should be showing up. But rather, you know, like really understanding our needs for sometimes being amazing and sometimes not being amazing, our needs to not be in that, you know, super engaged, super defensive forms of being and, and, and cultivating, you know, carve space to be together in more vulnerable ways and more caring ways that mm. that signal to each other that
1: mm.
0: we're not just these warriors that don't need anybody.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But in fact, we need each other in a deep way and we need that reminder, especially when we're doubting if we're belonging. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And what were the three things you mentioned? You talked about affirming difference. What were the other two?
0: Well, that's just the arc of change that we work on because we work with the storytelling and somatic practice. What we're trying to do is to give tools, viral tools to groups that where they can actually de-shame the field, work with the shame that, that exists at all moments in, in a particular group. Okay. And uh, you know, we, we give them tools to de-shame the shame of dependency, the shame of intimacy
1: uh-huh. and
0: the shame of difference.
1: Dependency, intimacy, and difference. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes, when you said this before, I was thinking about um, a mutual friend that we have, Nati, um, who's from, was working with Movimiento Cosecha. And um, Nati and I did a, a Instagram live talk last week on Healing Justice Instagram because uh, Nati listened to the episode. That we recently did with the icarus project talking about destigmatizing mental health and she was talking about um how she created i mean i've seen her do this in movimiento cosecha she created so much space for care and interdependence and storytelling and art and culture in cosecha and yet when she was really having personal mental health struggles she felt like it was her job to like go somewhere else to take care of it and like come back to the movement when she could be useful and to, and to not actually ask the group to hold her. And I think I feel that pattern super deeply. It's almost like the irony of people who go into like the healing or the culture building work of like that deep longing for that, those needs to be met in the group, but then still the deep personal shame of like, but not mine though. Like the rest of the group can do this, but like I shouldn't need anything. I shouldn't be a mess. I shouldn't detract from quote unquote the work, right? And so this your thing around shame of dependency, I guess, and shame of intimacy is like both resonating with me pretty hard.
0: Yeah, know, yeah, it's interesting you bring that because uh, you know we like to talk about inclusive spaces and inclusive culture being the result of cultivating three protective factors. Uh, three protective factors that can only happen in relation, that cannot happen by yourself. You can't cultivate this if you're uh, on your own and even if you're in a dyad. You you need a community to cultivate this with. And these protective factors, we call them protective factors because the research shows that what makes a community resilient and what makes an individual resilient is not the the self-mastery and the will to be resilient. And uh, it's more like what have you done with those relationships? What is the quality of those bonds? What is the the kind of inclusivity that they're able to uh, create at all times among them? And just so if people know what we're talking about, uh, you know, those protective factors are the capacity to have distributed dependencies that we have. Mm. Um, not just isolated dependencies or codependencies, like we would like to call it in our culture, that we're like, you know, just depending on one person or uh-huh. two maximum, but that we have arrangements where there's at least five relationships that we can depend on. Um, so that's what we call distributed dependency, enough of a size of dependency. That's yeah. one factor that we can cultivate over time and make it something that gives us that, that power of resilience yeah. and inclusivity. The other factor is, the, the the capacity for intimacy, sensitivity to connection, we like to call it. But are we at a level of somatic attunement and co-regulation that we have that intimacy?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are we co-regulating mm-hmm. as my heart leads you in some way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is quite literal, you know. We co-regulate in those ways. We share states and mm-hmm. uh, help each other in that way. And the last one is uh, this capacity to sustain inclusion and to sustain complexity, that we have Mm -hmm. enough dependency, enough distribution of that dependency, and enough intimacy that uh, diversity is not a threat, indifference is not a threat, but something we welcome and that we enrich and grow with. Yes. So um, with that note, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about the dynamic we've created in the movement of, you know, uh, longing because that's our drive to belong. Saying that you know the collective might be able to provide a possibility of something, but then this culture that is recruiting us into you know putting our our mental health in the hands of professionals only, mm-hmm. and um, just trusting that they could deliver you know what we need, and then ending up in this you know fragmented sort of way of delivering that, um, or you know other versions of it, which is to bring the professionals into the movement. Um, and I think that all that, that all could be good, you know. Uh, except you know, we're talking about sustainability and and resilience and 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 also you know, cultivating these these very basic uh, relational resources. Then we're not looking for what the community can give to each other.
1: I'm thinking about this article that just last week was going super viral about how I can't remember what the headline was, but it was basically saying like. Because men have so, like, m- men because of toxic masculinity, kind of in the West, like, have so few intimate relationships that it's putting such an enormous amount of pressure on their, like, hetero female partners, of, like, women becoming, like, the sole kind of emotional support for, like, cis hetero men, kind of op- operating in the toxic masculine paradigm. And I really, I really like your metric because it's very mappable of, like, Are there five consistent, intimate relationships that you could really depend on? Like, that's something we can count for ourselves. And I even think for me, like, I mean, I we're sitting in my collective house. Seven of us live here. I talk to my family all the time. I have a spouse. Like, but to really, really inventory who are the key five, like, to have that base of distributed dependency, that's a rigorous commitment i mean to maintain five relationships at that kind of depth and consistency is is a huge commitment i bet a lot of people don't have five
0: yeah and and that's one of the things that the resilience studies are bringing you know and and i think it's something that we need to really take uh in a more uh serious way because it's alarming you know what isolation can do Mm -hmm. and uh That we need to understand when we're isolated too, because sometimes we might have a relationship and feel like you know I'm not alone, but Mm -hmm. you don't have the five relationships, so Mm -hmm. you're still suffering the consequences of you know not having enough of a social field where um, you know your your health and your well being can flourish.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I like that one because you know part of what we've been talking about is like how do we take our capacity for resilience and belonging like some social fields that we're entering in movement space or just in the world, period, particularly folks with marginalized identities, like there just are social fields that are actually not inclusive and are violent and are rejecting and are collapsed and all of these things. And that to varying degrees, for all of us, that is part of our lives is having at certain points to interact with really unsafe, unsupportive social fields. And so I think that's part of what, like, the, the popularity around healing work in this sense, the word that we, you were using earlier when we were talking is, like, this illusion of self-mastery, like, this idea of, like, well, if I work on my boundaries enough and I go to therapy enough and I XYZ all these things, I can be, like, a self-inclusive, like, all-inclusive kind of self-contained package so that... I can stay regulated even when I move into social fields that are dysregulating and I hear you pretty consistently say like that's actually not possible like we need we feel each other and if you think about things like these five relationships right like what are the ways we can set ourselves up so that when we do have to move into hostile fields we can be more okay right?
0: Yeah Yeah, no absolutely and uh, you know these things work but they only work contextually you know we're in a westernized, patriarchal, capitalist system. So so those models of serviculation and self-sufficiency work on that context.
1: Uh-huh. But
0: if we're shifting that, you know, we're changing the world we want to live in and we're beginning to live differently, then um, the conditions are such that we'll have to uh-huh. be bothered by being in collective spaces. <laughs>
1: we'll have to be bothered by that, yeah.
0: So, So it's more like thinking how those... Self-regulatory methodologies are not sustainable for the kind of community you want to create. Like, and mm. in, in fact, might even be antagonistic because you might be taking too much time for your self-regulatory practice out of you know a, a space that could be created for a more co-regulatory space and, and practice. Mm. Um, so it's just like you know trying to really put our time where is urgent and and and. Kinda of like, like you were saying, you know, like in making an inventory. Okay, who are we talking about dependability in the movement? And how are we depending, you know, and mm. and is it explicit? And you know, we can get really transactional even though we're doing social justice and, and there's these very ways in which we're not defining, you know, the the long term dependencies like health and well being mm. and what's gonna happen after the campaign is over or this part of the movement is over. Are we talking about those long term Uh, ways in which we might need to actually have conversations around so that's what we mean by dependency and distributed dependency so do you have five relationships that you can have those conversations with Uh do you have a long-term vision with those over your well-being and and making sure that everybody has that and Mm -hmm. that no one goes without it Mm because then we could definitely uh tackle the risks of isolation, like, you know, high suicide and high reactivity and and rupture and breakage of movements that are so vital right now that they stay engaged and stay alive.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I just want to, because I feel so connected to this, like, oh, like, I just want to make sure I have my five, like, I just also want to send some love to anyone who's listening who might be feeling overwhelm or despair about like oh my gosh I barely even have one you know like that that is also not personal shortcoming that we're talking about a dominant culture that actually is very specifically set up to isolate us and to keep us unsatisfiable and unsupported so that we have to keep buying shit so we have to keep working harder so we have to keep having health crises and spend a bunch of you know rack up hospital bills like just sending love to folks who might even have just gone through a lot of conflict recently or been abandoned or hurt in some way, like, that there is time to rebuild those relationships and that I love the aspiration that you're calling us into, that our movement spaces, I mean, a lot of why a lot of us are part of movement is because, like, this is one of the only places where we do belong, right, and that we're fighting for that belonging for all people. So please stay with us even if you feel like you Are far from having those five right now. Of that, it's a journey, and that your people are out there, right? I mean, I'm sure you felt that a lot coming to the United States, and maybe still.
0: No, yeah, absolutely, and I, I do feel like you know, part of this work is the that that first shock of this regulation when you realize that you don't have you know sufficient size. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Social field. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes.
0: That's why we're building this movement, so everybody could mm. potentially have that, mm. those five relationships.
1: Mm. Can you tell me more about why that made you tear up?
0: Well, I think, you know, we, we care about the things that have made a difference in our lives. I think we're all, you yeah. know, um, following the, the call of leadership that we happen to be embedded in. And I think that, you know, this particular uh, intervention and this work that we do comes directly from the lives we've had,
1: yeah.
0: um, and the benefits that have mm-hmm. been brought by you know committing to a practice and committing to something that looks different than this world of isolation and dislocation. Um, and I think you know the emotions come from you know the just the, the walking the yeah. the path <laughs> and walking the talk. That would be the more appropriate I think and uh, realizing the you know for me you know coming into uh, this work was coming into uh, remembering even who I was you know like I didn't have enough relationships that will remind me who I was so I was erasing myself in the process of assimilation with the social feeds I was interacting with Mm -hmm. and you know it was very painful to realize that and then um also very um mm. fortunate to have him. you know people that I can cultivate mm. even if you know at the beginning I feel like strangers they become you know like uh my closest family mm. and 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 I feel like this is something we need to be doing together because um yeah you know we've we've seen movements rupture we've seen vital um campaigns collapse and and we have a pretty, I, I think, felt experience of yeah. the tragedy we're living in, so.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thank you for, I, f- I feel like even just the moment that you could so quickly drop into feeling this, like not just teaching it, but like feeling it is such a model of what you're fighting for, of like talking about dependability and intimacy and like that. Yeah, the way that personal story is so at the surface when we are fighting for the right things. Mm. Um, I see you model that so consistently, and it's super moving. I know I'm not crying, too. I'm not a quick crier, but I'm feeling with you. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, Lucien, I know you're going to offer us one of these um, touch practices, right, Um, for co-regulation. And I'm wondering, we won't teach it in this moment, but I'm wondering if you could give people just a quick preview of the practice that you're offering of just what's it called and what it what it is for so that they can look forward to tuning in next week and trying out the practice.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to be um, doing uh, one of our practices of somatic touch and... Um, You know, we we like to call it kind of like somatic check-in, like what what we do uh, before we engage verbally in some of our modules. And really what this is about is about, again, feeling, like we were saying, feeling the organs and the bones, Um, getting acquainted with this part of our bodies that um, we don't usually get acquainted with. Mm -hmm. We sometimes don't even know if they're there. so, you know, it's a simple way of first just uh, having a sufficient sized group that wants to engage in it, and, and we'll be listening with our bodies, not with our ears, not with our eyes, but mostly with uh, the sense of touch, with the rhythm of the pulse mm-hmm. and the rhythm of the breath mm-hmm. and the bones of the hand. You know, and, and And this connects us into... A much older narrative and I want to call it narrative on purpose you know it may not be a narrative for most people because we tend to think of narrative only something that humans do okay. but you know there's is stories that live in our bodies These, these reflexes if you want to call it that come from a deep uh, experiential journey of life through so many different permutations of of the ecosystem so they have a narrative they have a story to tell they have mm-hmm. um language that we understand in a different way Mm -hmm. and that uh, give us these words and sentences that remind us of a rhythm Mm -hmm. that regulate us. Mm
1: -hmm. So for folks who want to try on that somatic check-in practice, you can listen to the next episode and also for people who have resonated really hard with what you're saying and may have actually been longing for a long time either with these words or without them until this moment, like for a sense of a physical embodied commitment to connection in the way that you describe it, I know that you actually offer training that people can come and join you for in a totally beautiful place, the Watershed Center, which is also a a fiscal sponsorship home for this project and a friend of ours. Um, And so will you tell us what is the next time people could join you if they want to go deeper into a real embodied practice of this work?
0: Yes. uh, You know, we have uh, three modules. Uh, There are three residential weekends, and they kind of like go in order. You know, you have to take one to take two, and then you have to take one and two to take three. And uh, this particular module that dives into somatics a little deeper is level two, and the next one is happening Uh, from the 11th to the 14th of July, this summer at the Watershed Center. And right after that, we'll be doing uh, Level 1. That happens, I believe, the 18th through the 22nd, the the following weekend. So if you resonate with some of this stuff and you want to check it out, definitely. We would love to build a relationship with you and and make this journey of um, understanding shame in this way and building relations
1: Mm. in this way. Thank you. And I know folks can find out more on your website at relationaluprising.org. Correct. Um, And for those who are brand new to this work, this conversation with Lucien, your first opportunity will be to go to that bonding training this summer in July or to catch one in the future. So thank you so much for spending time with us, Lucien.
0: Thank you, Kate.
1: You just heard a conversation between Lucien Damaris of Relational Uprising and me, Kate Warning. If you found this resource useful, please join us with your support at any of our new community-building levels on patreon.com slash healingjustice, and you can check out the upcoming trainings and resources from Relational Uprising at relationaluprising.org. You can download the corresponding practice with Lucienne to learn how to do a somatic check-in which we'll be publishing next week if you're listening right when this goes live. Each Tuesday we release a conversation and the following Tuesday release a corresponding practice. So you can look for that next week. Links are in the show notes to find our email list at healingjustice.org and our social media. So stay in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We share some pretty gorgeous stuff every single day and love reposting your reflections and practices. This episode was edited by Sonia Hansen and mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us and to attuning together. Hear you next week.